got your asses whipped by a bunch of goddamn nerds. Hey, sports fans, welcome to Sports Nerds. Here are your hosts, Dr. Samuel J. and Dr. Brian Schrader. Happy holidays, everybody. Uh, today we have a special edition of Sports Nerds. Brian and I do an interview with Dr. John Solo from the University of Iowa. He is an economist uh, who occasionally dabbles in sports uh, economics, as you'll, as he will make clear. Although, from listening to the conversation, I think uh, it becomes pretty obvious that John knows a lot about sports, especially from an academic angle. It was a fantastic conversation. Uh, John is a very, very bright human being, and I think you'll be able to tell that. But he talks in ways that are very, very accessible. If you are interested in sports, which if you are listening to this podcast, you are, but also if you are looking for perhaps some sort of economic or financial perspective, this is going to be an episode for you. Also, we talk a lot about incentives and how those get used. Brian and I hope that you, uh, you'll you take the time to listen. Before closing up here, I just want to say thank you for the continued support to those of you who leave reviews on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Google Podcasts or anchor.fm slash sports nerds. It's much appreciated. We're humbled by the support that you continue to give us, so thank you so much. For those of you who want to support us and haven't done so, you can leave us those reviews or you can give donations to the show at anchor.fm slash sports nerds. And there's a button on there for you to, to give a little bit back to the show to kind of help us keep this thing going. And that should be it. Enjoy the show. So just to give you a little bit of background, uh, Brian and I are, are professors. Uh, you know, I'm at, I'm in Denver, and Brian is at uh, University of Michigan Flint. Um, most of our research we write together. We do actually. We just wrote a paper about free agency in baseball, kind of arguing that uh, free agency ushered in uh, the entry of neoliberal economic policy uh, into uh, how how players were evaluated. So. The stuff that you write about, um, we don't have that technical uh, acumen, but we certainly understand the perspective. And so that's what we discussed. That's what we write about. And we uh, we just started a blog recently in which we kind of talk uh, advanced stats and sports. So uh, what, yeah, kind of reading what you did is, is quite interesting to, to us. And so that's the perspective uh, we come from. Brian, are we missing anything? No, sounds good. Yeah. So okay, I will, again, I'll remind you that that paper is going to get kind of totally rewritten yeah um i don't think the results are ch- going to change um we may have i think we have a new figure and maybe some of the existing figures but but it, the issues are all there and i'm happy to and i can talk about it in reasonably non-statistical terms so that, that's not a problem so i guess to begin with what i mean you said um it's changed. What what has changed? What what do you see changing? Well, it's, it's just sort of it's just sort of the the interpret. No, it's not the interpretation. It's how we are going to present the results. Okay. Um, I don't. I don't. So my my I'm going to blame my co-author, but you know, he took <laughs> he took the first cut at writing it. Um, I'm. It's now my turn to write it, and I have a slightly different tack to take of, on the same results. Um, and mainly to emphasize uh, to emphasize different things. Um, uh, uh, so, the, uh, yeah, I'll give you a little background if that's all right. Please. Um, uh, so, so Tony Krautman, Anthony Krautman, who was the 
uh, actually the chairman of the economics department at DePaul um, and a faculty member, economics faculty member, longtime economics faculty member at DePaul. Uh, he, he and I have been writing for some time. He was actually my PhD student when uh, when I first got to Iowa, um, and uh, probably my first PhD student. Um, and it, we're actually more or less contemporaries. I had just come out of graduate school. He was just finishing, so we're about the same age. Um, uh, we've been writing about. He's he's much more um, in much more prolific in sports economics than I have been. Um, he he got started in it much earlier, and he's really kind of one of the big the big people in sports economics uh, today. I could name a handful, but Tony is is one of the big ones. Um, I got into writing sports economics. He he and I his thesis actually had nothing to do with sports economics, it had to do, in fact, there really wasn't a whole lot of it back then. Um, it had to do with nuclear power plants, cost, costs for nuclear power plants, and we wrote a bunch of stuff about the, sort of the economics of nuclear power way back when, and then we, we kind of stopped working together for a while. He was, he was at DePaul, I was at Iowa, we were doing different things, and then we got back together um, in terms of writing. We, we've been friends forever. Um, and he, and he started, he was well into his sports economics career and I got interested in it working with him and we've now done a number of things together. And what we're interested in these days broadly, we've written, we've written on a variety of things, but what we're interested in these days broadly is, uh, sports labor markets, uh, and sports contracts professional sports contracts and the incentive effects uh, that they have. Um, uh, and there's a, there's, so there's a whole interest in economics generally. Well, economics as a subject is basically about incentives, mm -hmm. um, uh, how, how various rules and policies and things affect people's decision-making. That's all about incentives. Um, there's, there's a lot of interest in economics generally about contracts um, and how, you know, the sorts of contracts, the, the incentive effects of different sorts of contractual arrangements on, for example, worker performance, or they could be on other sorts of performance uh, and so on. Um, where sports becomes, where sports comes into it, in my view, um, is that you know, you, you could be, you could look at what are the incentive effects, you could ask what are the incentive effects of various contractual terms in, say, the automotive industry, and how, how do the contracts that the United Auto Workers Union signs with, with GM and Ford and, and Toyota and whoever, uh, how do those affect the performance of workers at those companies? But the difficulty there is, how do you measure the performance of a General Motors worker? Um, you might be able to measure, you might be able to measure the performance of, uh, of labor generally at General Motors, but that's a very diverse group of folks doing a very diverse, a very heterogeneous group of things. Um, so, so the data. There's a huge data problem in in uh, in looking at the effects of contracts 
in other industries. But the beauty of sports uh, is that there is so much data um, down to the individual level, right? So we know we we know all sorts of details about. Um, yeah, we know physical details about players. We know their heights and their weights and whether they're left-handed or right-handed and then their age. We know about their experience. We, how long have they been in the minors? How long have they been in the majors? And then we know infinite amounts of performance data um, because the sabermetrics people keep inventing new ways to measure. We used to have batting average and maybe slugging and, and on-base percent. And, and now we have... You know, wins against replacement player measured three or four different ways, and and all these these advanced metrics that the uh, the, that the Bill James and sabermetric people sort out, and so we can test our theories about contracts using individual data on individual players over time, knowing lots and lots of things about their performance. So that's that's kind of the big picture. Uh, of what Tony and I are interested in um, at the moment. We're, and, and we're interested in other things too, but, but that's where this paper fits in. What we're doing here is, and this is not, I think, if you were to read the, the version I sent you, this might not come out so much, but this I think is going to be the, the, the new tack on all of this, um, uh, uh, is... Um, uh, so there's there's a lot of talk about how the very long term con well long term contracts and by long term I mean four five six seven eight nine year the, the, by the time you get out to eight year plus there are uh, there are very few of uh, uh, there are very few of these um, it's it right there there's uh, it, it numbers in the it, it numbers in the in the tens, right, of over recent history, um, but we're, that's what we're looking at. Uh, by the way, just as a as a sort of order of magnitude, uh, roughly speaking, half of all baseball player, major league baseball players, are on one year contracts. Half of the remainder, so another quarter, are on two year contracts. Uh, and of the last, so the last quarter. Of about 25% have three or more. That was the last time I looked at, at that data. There's a lot of talk in sports press um, and and sports finance press and the like about how some of these very long-term contracts have been terrible for the teams. Uh, again, you remember that in Major League Baseball, not necessarily in other sports, but in baseball, uh, contracts are guaranteed, uh, so they have a fixed term. They last for however many years the contract specifies. There are options and uh, player options and team options to extend them. And we've actually Tony has written about that. I don't think I've written any of those papers. But but basically the important thing is that they're guaranteed, so that the the pay is not tied to performance. Um, there are there are bonuses for little for the bonuses for things like being MVP for the season or being a World Series MVP um, uh, or winning the Golden Glove or what have you. Um, 
but those actually tend to be pretty small in the grand scheme of things. They might be. So Steve Pierce, who was the MVP for the World Series, he got a fifty thousand dollar bonus, but you know his his salary is over a million at least. I don't know exactly what his contract is, but fifty thousand dollars to a guy who made more than a million for the year is pretty small change. So we don't really worry about that uh, too much. Um, so there's a lot, and, and, and sort of the classic example of this, I think, is is A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez, right, who signed a deal, uh, a 10-year deal that ended, it, it ended, I think, in 2017. Um, uh, by the time, that the, and, they, and, and it was $20 million-ish a year, uh, and by the time he ended, that contract ended, he wasn't playing anymore, uh, of course. He was suspended for a year. That's kind of a special thing. But his performance had gone way downhill. And and there are people who said, you know, we should have seen that coming, right? When, you know, uh, uh, this was a no one is going to no one is going to play at a twenty million dollar a year level into their forties. And if you sign a ten year contract in your mid thirties, it doesn't end until your mid forties and and the team is obligating itself to pay you, even if you don't aren't on the field anymore, um, paying you twenty million dollars a year for those years. And people say that that can't have made sense. And look how much. And there have actually been some articles um, that quantify that. That say, you know, look look how look how much money the team wasted by. Um, uh, uh, look how much money the team wasted by by paying A-Rod for years that he, and, and other people like him uh, for years where he was simply not performing. And this is, this is sort of anecdotal, but you always hear the phrase, you're, you're, you're oftentimes paying players for what they've already done, not what they will, what they will do. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, the example, when you mentioned Steve Pierce, I was thinking of Andrew Benintendi on the Red Sox, who this year only made $500,000 despite being a major, making contributions to a World uh, Series. But that, that's a slightly different, that's a slightly different thing. And by the way, it's dear to my heart because I'm an old, I'm a long, I'm from the Boston area and a long, long time Red Sox fan. Oh, so is Brian. You guys have that in common. Nice. <laughs> I'm, not from, I'm, not, I'm not from the Boston area. My dad grew up in Arlington, but. Okay. No, no, I'm a huge Red Sox fan. I have been, have been since 1967. Wow. So impossible dream year when I was in eighth grade or something. Um, th- that's a little bit different, which is the fact that, you know, the, 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 for the first three years a player has no bargaining power at all, and and you know all this, right? And they, they get paid the, the league minimum. Um, and then for the next three years they have, uh, you know, they get, they, they're arbitration eligible, uh, but we're really focusing on free agent contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Tony has actually written them some stuff on the renegotiation of uh, sort of renegotiation of contracts during that time period and you know, during the first six years. But we're really focusing on on free agent contracts, long term free agent contracts, where where that's not an issue. Um, so there's a real question: Why would a team? Why would a team? Agree to pay somebody twenty $20 million dollars for the, the year that they're going to be forty three years old, when everybody knows that baseball players peak 
they typically peak, uh, you know, around 26 or 27, uh, and it's all downhill from there. And, and there's nobody who's playing seriously at age 45. Um, and so, so Julio there's Franco. some attempts. Pardon? Julio Frank. Uh, he wasn't playing seriously. But I'm yeah, trying to get. Julio Franco. Yeah. Bartolo Colon. Bartolo Colon. Yeah. yeah. We take your point, though. Yeah, we, for sure. Yeah. And then, by the way, we are also looking at hitters, not pitchers. Oh. Ah, okay. fair enough. So, someday we may look at pitchers, too. But we're looking, right at the moment, we're looking at hitters. Um, our point is I, I, I think the, the, the point that this paper is going to make is look, it's not. It's. It's, so there is also a question about the timing of payments, right? So, and, and we're we're not even getting into the fact that you know that that after after picking the the end years of, of salary, after agreeing to say say a five year contract for fifteen million dollars a year, you know you can move that, that adds up well that adds up to so seventy five million dollars. We really should do this on a on a you know, a uh, uh, present value, and we do in the paper. Think about the the you know the time value of money. The fact that money that's paid earlier is more valuable because you have an opportunity to earn interest on it. And, um, uh, uh, but anyhow, and we worry about all those details. But then there's also once that present value is set, there's also you know true backloading where they say, look, we owe you this money for the next say five years. But we're actually going to, then after we've settled on how much you, you earn each of the five years, we might get you to agree to take some of it, you know, five years after that with interest and just basically backload the contract out. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the values of the act, how much you get paid for performance for each year um, in present value terms. And uh, people have done these calculations and, uh, and they they measure how you know what were what were the worst contracts long term contracts I think Michael Miguel Cabrera is actually comes out as the worst of these of all time um, but A Rod is right up there um, and our point is to say well but it's it the numbers that people have been calculating have been looking back over time right they they take the actual they take A Rod's actual performance over uh, over the length of his contract and say, what was that worth? And you can measure that by figuring out what his, again, one way to do it, and it's the way we do it as well, is take his wins above replacement for each of those years, put a value on a win, which is something that Tony and I have written about before, and there's a whole economics literature on sort of what is, what is winning one more game worth, and then if if wins above replacement is a uh, is a is a valid measure of how many wins a player generates um, above a replacement player, then uh, then you could put a value on what his actual performance was, and then ask whether it was worth it. And the point of our paper is going to be basically that's hindsight. What we really should ask is what would you expect looking forward. Uh, a, a player's uh, performance to be worth over time. When when the Yankees signed that contract, and again, I'm being a Red Sox fan, I'm not a, not a fan of the Yankees. Um, <laughs> here, but, here. 
But when they, but to be to be fair, when they uh, when they signed that contract, they didn't know that a Rod. I hope they didn't know that a Rod was going to be suspended for a year for steroid use, and they didn't know that um, you know he was going to decline uh, as badly as he did and and not be able to to finish out the contract and things like that. Um, so what we really ought to be doing is asking. It, when the contract was signed, looking forward, what is the expected wins above replacement and the value of those wins uh, and so forth? And do they look, you know, when did, did they look, are, were they so bad? Uh, should, should people have known, you know, should people have said that that contract makes no sense? Uh, or to put it uh, put it in a slightly different way, and I think this is going to be part of the paper as well. It, if you're not, it, how much of this is pay, how much of that contract would be paying for performance, and how much of it must have been for something else? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, external what, what economists would call externalities. You know, the ability of a player to to improve the the performance of other players, for example. Um, I'm not a big believer in, you know, this notion that having somebody good hitting behind you improves your, your hitting, but that is a notion in baseball or, or infields work better when, when, uh, when both of the players, you know, when both the shortstop and the second baseman are good defenders because they can turn double plays better or something like that, or leadership in the clubhouse, which is very amorphous, um, so, so one way to look at it is how bad were those? How bad were those contracts based on what people thought was going to happen when, uh, uh, when, when the contract at the time the contract was signed, and if they fall short, um, if they fall short, uh, you know, what are the what explains the difference, and are the numbers plausible? And what we're finding. I think what our answers say is, look, on the three-year contracts, they're pretty much right on the money, right? We find that on average, a three-year contract overpay, uh, this is average across all the three-year contracts that we look at, which is mostly one per player because we're only looking at a a fairly short time frame, but mostly one per player, but it's long enough that we sometimes get two three-year contracts on the same player. on the three-year contracts, it, on average, they overpay by about two hundred thousand dollars. But given that the the per, se- per season, but given that the per season con- average three-year contract pays about seven million, that's that's nothing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's pocket change. Mm-hmm. As you go to the four-year contracts and the five-year contracts and on out, they t- on average they overpay more. Um, and, and, uh, although there's some, you know, not all of them overpay, some of them, some of them are profitable for the team. Some of them are profitable for the uh, profitable for the team in the sense that the team, if our measure is correct, if our measure of the value of the player is correct, the team is paying less than the player is worth and the team gets the difference. But more often than not, the team overpays. Uh, and then at the end, we're going to say, why ask you know, why and, and there are a couple reasons there, there are several possibilities and probably a bunch of them 
actually to some extent. Um, one would be uh, one would be well, one would be that <coughs> excuse me that that owners really aren't interested in just making as much money as they can. They're actually uh, they want to win and they're willing to overpay what a player is worth in order to 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 win things. Um, we tend to we in the U.S. tend economists sports economists in the U.S. tend to think of owners as as profit maximizers as trying to make as money as much money as possible um in europe there's a lot more um uh, there there are are more sports economists uh who think that owners are and and clubs are win maximizers rather than profit maximizers but we in america we tend to think that owners owners um they are they are taking the they really are thinking about the dollars right so uh, so John when you say that I, when you say that are you, you know, as as a potential reason is that uh, for such things like externalities of, of attendance and and owners kind of wanting to use a, a big time player in order to get people to fill the seats and then also in a secondary yeah. to that is does that actually happen like is that do they make enough money in terms of jersey sales and and attendance to to even out the extra money or the wasted money that is spent or do you know that yet. Well, so it, it, it's so. First of all, I don't. If I if I understand your question correctly, I don't think it is. Um, you know, I don't think they. Well, first, all right. Number one big point is that what what the profitability of baseball teams is really not well known because the the teams hide their hide the books and, and <laughs> we're, right. We're we're quite aware. Um, you know, there have been a few leaks of real uh, of, of real accounting for teams, but teams often, you know, they say, "Oh, we're not making any money. We need this. We need that. Look how poor we are. We can't make any money." And then, and then the franchise sells for three billion dollars or whatever, and people say, "Oh, well, why would you? Why would anyone buy a franchise for?" hundreds of millions or even a billion dollars if it's losing, if it's a business that's losing money. You would not do that unless you're just so wealthy that it's a plaything and you don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, again, in the, the, the proposition that the proposition that owners are profit maximizers or win maximizers, that's, that's not, I don't know that anyone has really tested that. I'm not sure that that's. I haven't. That's a very good. That's a very good economic question. I don't know whether anyone's actually. You'd have to find some some situation in which win maximizers and profit maximizers would behave differently, and then you would need to have the data to to, to, to test that out. Um, but it's really it's more. That's more something that's taken as given, right? Economists. Economists like to believe that most people, most business people, are trying to make as much money as possible. Right. Uh, but the Europeans are a little more inclined. I, I think part of that has to do with the fact that here, sports teams are businesses, whereas in Europe, often it's a club. Um, it's a it's a different kind of organization. But I'm kind of getting out there in what I really know about it. But it is true that 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 the Profit maximization hypothesis is really kind of a, a bedrock hypothesis. We just we assume it because that's what economists assume, 
and American economists tend to assume it more strongly than European economists do. Um, but it is possible that so it, 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 so that's point number one. Point number two is it, just because they're overpaying on these contracts doesn't mean, mean that they're losing money. It just may mean that they're not making as much money as they could um, if they didn't overpay on these contracts. And uh, we, it's hard to know the answer to that because we don't really know for sure how much they're, they're making. We do know we do know what they pay players. That's something we have very good data on. We can estimate reasonably well, I think, what a win is worth, although that takes work and there, you know, it's an estimate. It's not, it's not necessary. I'm talking about a win for the team, not mm-hmm. a win by the player. Um, that That's an estimate, but people have done a lot of, have done a lot of work on that. But whether the team is, we don't know what the fixed costs are. We don't know what, you know, they do things with ticket prices and, and they, they, they cook the books in a variety of ways. They, they account for things in very interesting ways is probably a better way to, more, more neutral way to put it, um, which we don't get to see often. We get glimpses into this every once in a while when somebody leaks something or, or when the, there was the famous Blue Ribbon Commission back in the 90s where uh, baseball actually opened their books to an accounting uh, firm and let them let them audit it. And this was uh, George Will and Paul Volcker from the Fed and uh, George Mitchell, the former senator from Maine. They were among the members of this this blue ribbon commission that looked into the question. Um, so we don't really know that they're losing money. It's not that they're, they're losing money necessarily, but they may be making less than they could by overpaying some of these people. Um, and and then some of it, as we, as as you said, I said, and you echoed, it, it may not be. You know, there may be other explanations. It may not just be overpayment. And so we're measuring. We're trying to measure what's the value of a player's performance by looking at the wins that they generate using, you know, WAR, using wins mm-hmm. above replacement player. But there might be um, other ways that players contribute either to winning, which contributes to money, revenue, or that just contribute to revenue. Right there, I'm sure there were people who came to watch Derek Jeter in his last season when he was actually a pretty terrible shortstop and wasn't a very good hitter. Um, In fact, I think towards the end of that season, Jeter said, look, I mean, there's no reason I really should not be on the field. I am not the best shortstop that we have. And, uh, but they kept putting him out there. Why? Because it puts, it puts fans in the seats and sells tickets and sells and, and cut TV contracts and stuff and things like that. Um, I think what's what's com- that might be part of it. Okay, um, Brian, I'll let you chime in too if you have a question. But I guess to me, I mean, John, Brian, and I are we're, we're rhetoricians, and so we're particularly interested in in how not so much reality happens and and making sense of reality, but rather um, how we use language to make sense of what actually happens. And so, what's to me interesting about the research that that you and Tony are doing is that this data kind of shows that the the actions of ownership in terms of their decision to sign these players long term and their their public 
reasoning or, or public explanation for these contracts, they don't necessarily match up. I mean, if, if owners were, were wiser and, and were focused on winning, and I think I know you're not coming to that conclusion at all, right? I understand what you're, you're, you're being very careful to say that, that that's what's going on here in the States. But I think that that argument, at least for us, makes a lot of sense because you see fans be completely devoted and committed to, say, the Chicago White Sox and the White Sox don't perform, but yet you'll have ownership saying, you know, we're going to, we're doing all these things we you know, we're going to say that we're going to potentially go get Bryce Harper and all this because, um, you know, we want to win, but, but yet what I'm seeing here is that's not necessarily the case. It's very much about having a product, uh, that, that makes money. And I, it's just funny, right? I mean, to me, it's like the, irris- the, the irrationality or the unreasonability of the fan um, skews our perspective of sports as a business so much. And to me, this kind of just drives it home in reading, in reading and talking to you, to you about your work. Yeah, that, I think, yeah, I'm, so by the way, I'm, you know, I, I, I know I, I'm not really interested. I'm not a rhetorician. I'm not really, I'm, I'm not, I know, I know very little about it, but I did have a, a former colleague Guy, actually, the guy who hired me, um, who was very interested in sort of the rhetoric of economics, and and so I, I, I think you're right about. I mean, I, the case that so the sort of the case that always gets to me is the Florida Marlins, right? <laughs> who every once in a while do really well, and, and you know they've won a World Series, right? Every once in a while they they. They get a bunch of young players who they don't have to pay a lot of money to because of the, of the league rules. Um, you know, if you're they're in the first three three or six years, they don't have to pay them a lot. They don't pay them a lot. Some of them turn out to be great. They they have a good season and and I guess that was that was this is the guy named Hoizenga H U I Z E N G A. I think he was the owner. But as soon as that happened, he would sell them all off mm-hmm. and get another batch. And if you were a fan, it's like you just won the World Series. Why don't you keep these guys around and try to win again? It's no, it's for the money, right? Because he's not really selling tickets. He's developing talent, and then and they don't sell well. Um, and it's a little puzzling why they would have fans at all. Whereas there are, but there are people who are kind of diehard. It's my home team, and 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 I would stick with them. The other other one, this is maybe not quite as on point, but uh, so I remember growing up. I remember when my kids were growing up, and we used to talk about uh, Jose Canseco when I guess he was playing for the A's and maybe Texas, and and he and he this is back when you know. Jose Canseco let a ball hit him on the head and go over the fence for a home run, mm-hmm. and he was kind of a, he he was an idiot, right? He, we, we, and we all made fun. Was, I raised my kids Red Sox fans. We made fun of Jose Canseco, and then of course they put it that Red Sox traded for him, and I, it was very hard to explain to my six-year-old why. Yes, he's an idiot, but he's on our team now, and we have to root for him, right? And and. That that's a fan thing, right? I spent you know I spent two years explaining to my kids how he was an idiot. And we didn't like him, and now all of a sudden we have to like him because he's on the red side. So that's that's a it's not really an economic thing, but it says it says something about fans' loyalty to their teams and and 
I guess the I guess the economics is to what extent can you exploit that, right? To what extent can you overcharge yeah. fans um, and, or under or underperform on the field? Those would be two things. You know, either overcharge for a given uh, quality of, of team or for a given ticket price under underperform on the field and still and still make money and make a little extra money and presumably a fan and, and this would be true about anything right if if i'm gonna buy bud light because uh, and, and i would never do that but if I, <laughs> if, I, if I thought of myself as a true bud light drinker and i don't like coors light or natty light or anything which by the way there are scientific tests that show that the typical light beer drinker can't tell the difference between them in a blind taste test but nonetheless, people say, no, no, I'm a bud drinker. I'm mm-hmm. not a Coors drinker. I'm a bud drinker. Um, that enable that loyalty enables, the economics of it is that loyalty enables the uh, uh, Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch, to overcharge a little bit because they're going to drive some people away who don't care. But to the extent that there are people who are loyal, they'll pay the extra few cents because of the their image of themselves or something like that. And I suppose that's the same story. And in, in, there's something to that in baseball um, and in sports generally, right? I'll still go and watch the team, even if they stink, uh, because I'm a fan and that's fans are loyal. I hope that answers the question. It, it's funny that the example that you use for the team that doesn't seem to be all that responsive to the fans' demands for quality on the field is is the Marlins, and that's, I mean, that's an expansion team, right? That's not 90, 93 well, or something like yeah, that, same year as the, I, I wonder, yeah, I wonder though, if you could do that with kind of a, a historic baseball team, like the Red Sox or like the Cubs, where if that won't fit into even the economic model, the way you're describing it. Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't know that, I mean, I, I don't know whether anyone has done, I don't know whether anyone has done that question. One of the things that is, surprisingly underdone in economics as in sports baseball economics is to look at ticket prices um, you think we're economists that's what we ought to be looking at is <laughs> prices right that's what economists pay attention to but part of the problem is that there isn't a ticket price there's multiple ticket prices depending on the seats um, and uh, and and the and the posted price is not the actual price because of StubHub and reselling and, and scalping generally. And um, uh, I know I know one guy who's looking at aver- who looks at sort of the average ticket price. There are re- there's revenue data, um, so you know what the what the team sold uh, sold all of its tickets for, um, and you know how many seats, how many tickets they sold, so you can kind of get an average price, but that's not really the price that, you know, for the, the, the first baseline seats versus the bleacher versus the nosebleed or whatever. Um, so I don't know that anyone's looked at that, but it's a really good question. Uh, I'll, I will, you've, you've given me a research topic. Well, John, I know you got to... There was one guy... There was one guy who said, and I don't want to go down this path too much because I'm going to take way too much of your time, but um, there was one guy, so there's this thing in baseball, uh, there's this thing in sports and comics, very old question called the uncertainty of outcome hypothesis, which says that you want to, 
a fan wants to see that you like to see your team win, but you like to see it. You like it to be uncertain, right? You don't, you don't want to watch your team beat the tar out of everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why the Warriors become kind of old it's news and Exactly. It's exactly that phenomenon. And it's like, if it, assuming LeBron hadn't moved, it's, you know, boy, who wants to see another finals between Cleveland and Golden State, right? We've got three in a row. I don't want to see the next ten finals. It just gets boring. Um, uh, Alabama, maybe. Yeah, Alabama is the same thing, although obviously it's not pro, but... um, but yeah, Alabama's the same. You want there to be some. You want there to be some challenge. So you don't want to watch, you know, a pro team. Who wants to watch a, their pro team beat up a high school team or a college team, right? You'd win all the time, but you wouldn't really feel very good about it because they, they had such an advantage to start with that you, if they hadn't won, if they hadn't won by an enormous amount, you would feel bad. Um, and there was one guy who. Uh, a friend of mine actually wrote a paper where he said, "No, look, the what, what you really do want to see is your team beat the tar out of somebody. That's you want to see your team just dominate." And I, and my response was, if that was true, then the most valuable tickets would be, you know, when the Red Sox play the worst team in the league, right? Not when they play the Yankees. What makes the Yankees Red Sox games? interesting and why people are willing to pay a lot for tickets is because the Yankees are good and of course you want to beat them but but you want them to be good and beat them you don't want them you don't want to watch I don't want to watch the the Red Sox play the Orioles right that's there's no there's no fun in that because the Orioles are the worst team around and it's just if we don't win it's it's embarrassing um so it's a different thing. There was actually yeah. a study. There was a study. Uh, it, it was from the UK. It came out maybe in July, in which they had had somehow they were placing sensors on on football soccer fans over there and having and, and they were pinging them throughout a match and trying to oh, they were trying to measure uh, basically their their affective disposition uh, throughout the the course of the match. And what they found is that fans actually uh, the this the, the the significance or the 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 what's the word uh, the the power of the affect of the emotion is actually much stronger after a loss than it is with a win and so it, the conclusion uh, was fans they get we, we we invest more energy uh post uh in a loss than we do with with a win and i wonder i'm sure it has something to do with this obviously this economic theory but um i mean it makes sense it's it's you know we we want to feel oh, yeah yeah the word the feeling is worse than it is better if that makes sense yeah yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I've had this idea, and I've, I've never actually pursued it, but one of these days I might to look at. So now you can get the you know the the online they they do these sort of real time predictions of of the probability of the home team winning, right? And and you can watch the score grow, the, the score differential grow or shrink, and they and the you know the, it'll give you minute by minute the probability of team a or team b winning um and i have thought sometimes about trying to match that up with with nielsen data for tv watching and see if the audience how the audience size changes um and i think that might be an interesting thing you know so do people turn off the game when 
their team starts to pull away, or when their team is getting hammered. And yeah, it'd be interesting the if there's a, yeah, it'd be interesting if there's a correlation. What you might find out is that people uh, either don't realize how close or foregone the game is, or they don't yeah. care. Right? Right. Interesting data set. Yes, it could. It could well be that people uh, look. I mean, I, again, if I'm a New Englander, I'll watch. I'll watch the Patriots. I'll watch the Red Sox. All the way down to the I don't with the Red Sox I don't believe the game is over until the final out because I watched the ball go through Bill Buckner's legs and <laughs> and for for ten minutes there before the Red Sox blew that game to the Mets I really thought that the curse had been lifted I was ecstatic that the so Red it's Sox your fault <laughs> and, and, I, and I let myself believe that they were going to actually pull this thing off and then I got to see the ball go through Buckner's legs and they lost it. People forget that that was game six. They game still could have won it in game seven, but and they were ahead in game seven. I just said, I don't believe it. They're going to lose it. They're bound to lose it. And they did. Um, so it was until Keith Folk tossed the final out to first base. Yeah, Mankiewicz. That, uh, that's the first time I really let myself believe because they're the Red Sox. So they've done this to me so many times. This is the difference between a Cubs fan and a Red Sox. Fan, okay? I'm a Cubs, Cubs fan. fan. Careful. Tread lightly. That could be, that could, that could be the name of our podcast. <laughs> Cubs fan and a Red Sox fan. So, so the thing what I was going to say is, uh, and by the way, it's changed. I mean, because obviously the Cubs have gotten good now too. But back, you know, ten years ago, the difference between the Red Sox fan and the Cubs fan was that every year that the Red Sox would get close—not every year, but frequently—the Red Sox would get close. They would make the playoffs, they would make the World Series, and then they'd lose in the seventh game, and that happened way too often. And they broke our. But but we would always say, you know, think about next year because. We got so close. The Cubs fans always would say, well, there's always next year. And the Cubs were never close, right? They were always terrible. But they still believed. They still believed in their team. And the Red Sox fans believed in their team because they got close. But um, now both of them, it's all different after you after the curses have been, have been lifted. So No, I, I really, yeah, it's, uh, uh, okay, well, I know you got to go, Brian. I know you got to go, and I know I got to go. So we should we should do this again one of these days. John, have you ever talked to uh, anytime? Have you ever talked to Sean Foreman? He's an Iowa grad. He's the guy who started Baseball Reference. Yeah, as a matter of, I haven't talked to him, but as a matter of fact, so one of the one of the papers, one of the projects that I'm working on, uh, basically he gave us he gave us uh, a whole bunch of data oh, on nice. baseball reference so that we didn't have to scrape it off the web or, or, or type it in or stuff like that. Um, this is actually another paper about contracts, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not about whether they're overpaying or not. But, um, so I, I, I took his data plus a whole bunch of data from, from uh, COTS, COTS Baseball. Do you know about COTS Baseball Contracts? Yes, yes. This is an amazing website. Um, and we collected a whole bunch. So we knew, I have this data set, it's now a little old, probably should be updated, but but has every contract for every player who ever had, I think we, we dropped out anybody who had less than 10 at-bats, but every player who had a season with at least 
you know, a handful of at bats, and we had every single contract, all of the details, signing bonuses and and options, and whether the option was exercised or not, what the buyout for the option if it wasn't exercised, et cetera, et cetera. And then Sean gave us all of the the player data, the heights and weights and left hand or right hand and position and team and and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. I, I, know, I certainly. I've never talked to him, but I know about him. Yeah. Well, John, thank yeah, we could do this again sometime. I'd love to. Yeah, no. Anytime you want to come in or come on and uh, and uh, update us on the research, that would be awesome. We really, really appreciate you yeah, talking. I, I noticed you had a, a piece on the uh, on the Rooney Rule, which I think would be a fun a fun thing to have a yeah, conversation about. Yeah, I'd love Especially to. Especially given they're going to change that. No, that one's published. So that one is. Uh, yeah, are they going to change the rule? Yeah, they're going to change their – it just was a news article today or yesterday. They're going to require teams to um, hire uh, – to interview someone outside of their organization or someone from an approved list. Wow. Oh. I'll be I think this is – we could spend another half hour on that. I think this is a dumb idea, the Rooney Rule. Um, I think, I think if, if you care about racial – more racial parity in the coaching ranks – the, the the best the problem is too few play, too few coaches in the pipeline right if, you know uh, one of the things we said in that paper was that if you look at the coaching staff if you look at the head coaches of the, of NFL teams the majority of them in fact the fairly strong majority of them are not former players now there are former players in the in the coaching ranks um you know, Herm Edwards was a coach, and he's not a, he was a great player, and Mike Singletary was a player, but Bill Belichick was never a player, and uh, I mean, there's a lot of them who were never pro players. Um, so these are people who, so many of them were college players, but never pro players. And I think if the NFL really wanted to do something, they would set up some program where they would take got kids who didn't get drafted, minority kids, black kids, college players who didn't get drafted, but, you know, finished school and seemed to be intelligent and say, you know, you're probably not going to ever be a defensive back because you're five foot nine and weigh 185 pounds. And that's just not going to do it in the pros, but you could be a good coach and we'll have some program to start them in some sort of an internship and, and develop their coaching skills and get them in at the bottom so that they, the good ones would work their way up to the top and then eventually be selected as head coaches. I think that would be a much better thing for them to do. Well, let's let's do that one of these days when we uh, get settled in. That'd be great. All right, John, we appreciate it. Brian, Brian, I know you got to go. So, All right, gents, uh, have, a, have a fantastic – happy holidays. You too. I'll say hi to your mom. All right. Thanks, John. All right. Bye. Take it easy. See ya.